The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. TBC, we like to pray over different folks, and so this morning we're going to do that. If you are a grandparent, would you stand and keep standing? Your grandparent, we want to pray for you in a minute. If you'll stand and keep standing, if you possibly can. I realize that's hard for some of you. There we go. We're going to pray over you in a second. Keep standing. Keep standing. You know, also, we have a number of servants as we launch into a new school year, a number of folks that serve here at TBC in a lot of different areas. And if uh, you serve uh, at TBC in some area, nursery, preschool, elementary, youth, college, singles, adult Sunday school, if you lead a small group, host a small group, an elder deacon staff, mercy team, you serve everybody in some way, would you stand so that uh, we'll pray for you in a second as we launch uh, this year? And finally, you know, it's a new school year for a lot of our uh, students, actually for all of our students, a new school year. And uh, we want to pray for those associated with education anyway. If you're a teacher, an aide, a coach, administrator, board member, uh, homeschool mom, if you're associated with education anyway, would you stand so we can pray over you this hour as well? Let's thank all these folks, and I'll pray for them right after that. Father, it's our desire to honor Jesus with our lives. And if it's as parents or grandparents, if it's in education, if it's working in ministry here at TBC, we give you glory and we give you honor. So, Father, it's our prayer that you would be the one who's lifted up, that you receive all glory, you receive all honor. And so, Father, as we begin this new journey in the Gospel of Mark, I pray that you would open our eyes to the Word. And as we see the Word, that we would be those who live it and who honor it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, if you have a white Honda Odyssey, you left your keys in the car, and it's running, and you better go to the office. <laughs> License plate XO10DV. I want to see who you are. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go. There they go. Well, see you guys later. Adios. The best introduction I could have right there. Wow. Let's still do Mark. How's that? That's, a, that's you know, 32 years up here. It's the first time that's happened. I mean, there's a car running in the parking lot. Wow. We're not going to be so long it'll run out of gas. I can guarantee you that. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read it out of the NIV. I use the New American Standard, the NIV, on my iPad up here. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark places his pen on the parchment and he opens his book and he says, the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel, if you've got the New American Standard, same word about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The gospels are good news. It's good news about who our Savior is. And Mark begins his gospel by talking about the journey that Jesus is prepared for to go to the cross. And so we're going to look at a message. Our entire series is called The Journey, and we're going to look at a message I've entitled Preparations. The gospels, as you know, comprise four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each was written for a specific purpose to a specific audience. The Gospel of Matthew was written to show that Christ is a king, and his primary audience was the Jews. And so when you study the Gospel of Matthew, it's really answering the question, if Christ is a king, then what happened to the king and his kingdom? And Matthew lays out the answer to that question. And so if you're going to present Christ as king over the nation of Israel, you're going to have to show that whoever this king is, he is properly related to the ultimate or the, the, the best king in Israel's history, the high watermark in Israel's history. You would show that somehow this king is related to David. 
And so if you look at Matthew's gospel, it begins with a genealogy and it traces Jesus back to King David. Then the gospel we're going to look at for the next several months is the gospel of Mark. And it portrays Christ primarily as servant. Shows him as king as well, but as servant primarily. He is in that role and it's written to the Romans. Now, a servant or a slave, his history is not that important. And so if you look at Mark's gospel, it does not have a genealogy because he's a servant. In servants, you don't connect back to the parents or back to some line or lineage. And so Mark jumps right into his gospel. Luke presents Christ as a son of man, as a son of man. He's writing primarily to the Greeks. And so if you were going to trace this person back, whoever it would be, Jesus is who we're talking about. But if you can trace him back and show him as a son of man, you would trace him back as he does and Luke does in Luke chapter 3 to Adam, the first man. And so you have Matthew presenting Christ as king, traces him back in a genealogy that's recorded for us to King David. And then you've got Mark presenting him as servant, and so there's no genealogy because a servant's genealogy doesn't matter. And then Luke presents him as a son of man, and he traces him all the way back to Adam, the first man. Then John presents Jesus as the son of God. In fact, in John's gospel, he gives us the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20. These things I've written to show you that Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, and that's why he's recorded the events that he did and the narratives that he wrote. And so in John's gospel, if he's writing to the entire world and presenting Jesus as the Son of God, he begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, and he became flesh and lived among us. And so rather than a genealogy, it shows that he is indeed God's Son. He is God. This morning we focus on Mark. Our entire next several months, uh, almost two semesters worth, we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel. And there are a couple of things about Mark's gospel. If you're writing your Bibles, you might want to write it above the heading uh, up there. First of all, Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. Mark is a man uh, of few words. In fact, if you look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, he records the entire temptation of Jesus in just two verses. If you go to the other Gospels, you'll see that it's elongated and takes more space. But Mark is a man of action. In fact, there's a word that's used 42 times in Mark's Gospel. That word is immediately. Immediately. Mark is a gospel of action, immediately, immediately, immediately. And you find that it begins in the introduction of Mark in the first verses, in verse 10, immediately coming out of the water, referring to Jesus. And then you see in verse 12, and immediately the Spirit impelled him. And if you walk through Mark's gospel 42 times in this gospel, you'll find that particular word that's used, immediately these things happen. Mark is a man of action. It's the shortest gospel. It's also the first gospel that was written. It's the first gospel that was written. It's the oldest of the gospels. So Mark is the shortest, the oldest, and the first gospel written. It's the oldest. It makes sense. It's the first one written. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter is writing, and he calls Mark my son, my son. Peter and Mark had a close relationship. And many scholars feel like Mark's gospel is really a reflection of what Peter experienced in his relationship with the Savior. And so Mark's gospel may be through the eyes of Peter as he and Mark were close associates. Well, the beginning of this is about preparation, about preparing for the journey, getting ready for the journey that's ahead. How many of you are planners? You like to plan out there, especially when you travel. Let me see your hand. How many of you are planners and married to someone that hates to plan? Let me, yeah, you throw them up real quickly. There you go. How many of you are afraid to raise your hand because you hadn't planned on doing it this morning? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I, I, I'm a planner, especially if we're taking a trip, if we're leading a trip or going on a journey. And Bev and I have led numerous mission trips or trips to Israel or Paul's journeys. And, and, and I'm a planner on a trip. I've got a checklist of things to pack. I've made it up and, and have a hard copy of that. And when I get airline tickets via email, I print those. So I've got a hard copy. I, uh, put a copy on my phone and a travel folder. I've got a great app called TripIt. If you don't know what TripIt is, I've had 100 people ask me today. It's a great app. You can download anything that comes through you, and it's right there, and you've got that all in front of you. And then I put it on my phone calendar with alerts. I am well prepared. I've planned. And then uh, when it comes to my passport, you know, it has an expiration date, so I always check that. And then I take a picture of it, so it's always on my phone. So if I lose my passport, I've got a copy of it. I also make a hard copy and put in my suitcase and also in my carry-on. How many of you saying that's a sick man up there preaching this? Yeah. Or paranoid, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, whatever it is. Somebody saying there's medicine for that, Gary? I say, yeah, there is. And I, t- I don't take it, but maybe I need to. I don't know. How many of you feel real sorry for my wife, Bev, at this point in time? <laughs> 37 years of marriage this past week. She's put up with that for a long, long time. I'm telling you, bless her heart. Mark chapter 1 is about preparing for the journey. It's about Jesus preparing for journey to the cross. Not about passports and airline tickets. It's about the most serious journey that anyone's ever experienced. In fact, Mark is such a man of action that he's only going to spend 10 chapters talking about the ministry of Christ, and then beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, to the end of the book, we're going to be in Jerusalem. I mean, he hurriedly gets to Jerusalem in the Passion Week of Christ. So not only is the shortest gospel, it gets us to the last week of the life of Christ quicker than any of the gospels. And so for the next several months, that's what we're going to be looking at. A journey through the gospel of Mark together as we look at Christ, and this morning we talk about his preparation for that journey. Chapter 1, verse 1 is loaded with a lot of stuff. We could spend the rest of the morning just looking at that one verse, although you know we won't. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark says, I I want you to know we're going to start at the very beginning, and that we're going to talk about the gospel. The gospel, the word for the, the word for gospel, if you've got the NIV, it's translated good news. That's the exact meaning of that word. He says, I'm writing about the good news. Here begins the good news. The good news is that Jesus, that's the name of a man, Christ, that's not just any man, be it the anointed one, the Messiah, that's what the word Christos means, is the Son of God. That is, he's not just any man, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah, and he's not just a man, but he's also God. What Mark is saying here, he begins his writing boldly by saying, I've got good news for you, and the good news is Jesus is the Messiah, he is God's Son, the good news is about him, in fact, he is the good news. There is no good news apart from him. There are a lot of people that would disagree with that. They would say, well, as long as you're good and seek whatever way you want to heaven, that's the good news. But the reality of it is that's not true. There is one way. Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Mark says, I've got good news for you. Here's the gospel. I want you to know Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's son. And the good news is about him. And the good news is him. This is the message. The good news is we can repent of our sin and we can be forgiven by our Savior and that Savior is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. By the way, that was John the Baptist's message. Look at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came preaching the gospel. 
And then Jesus himself in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. After John had been taken into custody, as John the Baptist, Jesus came preaching what? The gospel. And he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news, believe in the gospel. So both Mark writing as well as John the Baptist preaching and Jesus preaching are saying, here's the good news, the gospel is you can be forgiven of your sins by a Savior, and that Savior is the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. And so Mark unabashedly begins his gospel by saying, I want you to see, I want you to hear, I want you to understand from the very beginning the good news, the gospel. The gospel is not joining a church. The gospel is not doing good deeds. The gospel is not getting baptized. The gospel is not mouthing a few words. The gospel is not raising a hand. The gospel is not walking down an aisle. The gospel is not getting your fire insurance. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the servant, the king, has come. Salvation is in him and him alone. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. I think a key verse in Mark's gospel is found in chapter 10, verse 45. If you... Circle it in your Bibles, perhaps. We're going to come back to that verse over and over in this series. It's a turning point in the gospel. As I told you, beginning in chapter 11, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the week of the Passion. And Christ states, even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but he came to serve, specifically to give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus says, I came with a purpose. That purpose was to serve, and that purpose was to give myself on your behalf, to pay the price. And so Mark's gospel is about the Savior. Mark's gospel focuses upon the Savior. Mark's gospel is about the proclamation of who Jesus is. Now, that proclamation begins with an announcement of the journey. That proclamation begins with the announcement of the journey beginning. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, it's written in Isaiah the prophet. And all Mark does is he thrusts John the Baptist on the scene. He's a man of few words, and so he opens his gospel up, and he says, I want you to know about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah wrote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. My messenger, the one who comes with the message, he'll prepare your way. He's the forerunner preparing the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, circle wilderness in your Bible. We'll see it a couple of times in this passage. And he cries out, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. There's our word again, wilderness. And he was preaching, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. A renegade prophet was causing quite a stir throughout Israel. He was untrained. He was unkempt. The religious leaders of Israel couldn't stand him because of the people's response and the message he brought. John tells his followers in the curious crowd he's just a forerunner. He's just preparing the way for someone else. In fact, he'll say, I'm preparing the way of one. Look at verse 7. The one who's coming after me is mightier than I am, and I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. John the Baptist says, I I want you to know, I come, I come proclaiming message. I I come preparing the way of the ultimate one who's following behind me. That's the Messiah. It's the Christos, the anointed one, the Savior. In that day and age, when it says John comes proclaiming, it's a reference back to the herald, the one who heralds others. In that day and age, I want you to think about how announcements were made. Let's say a dignitary or a king was going to come to a village. So how did people in that village or that city find out he was coming? The cameras of CNN and Fox were rolling. People hopped online and read it on the Internet. Got the newspaper in their front yard and read about it. 
I mean, what would happen is if a dignitary was coming, if a king was coming, there would be a forerunner, a proclaimer, a herald. And he would go from village to village to announce that the dignitary is coming or the king is coming. That was the role of the forerunner. That was the role of the proclaimer. That was the role of the herald. John the Baptist says, I come proclaiming that there's one coming after me, that the king is coming. You better be ready. I mean, that's really John's message. There's one coming after me. I'm the forerunner. I'm the proclaimer. I'm the euagelion, the herald. And after me comes one who you better be ready to meet. Basically his message. And so John comes to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah to prepare the way of the Lord. He's proclaiming, get ready, get ready. In fact, when he looked at the crowd, John records it this way. He saw Jesus coming up and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everyone in that audience knew that he was referring the Messiah, the Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God. They celebrated Passover every year where they, where, where they would slay the unblemished lamb. Behold the one who's your sacrifice comes. And that's the message of John the Baptist. Now John's message was clear. You need to repent. Look at verse 4 for the forgiveness of your sins. And then his message was being, being followed by many. I mean, this was a message where people were responding. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized in the Jordan River by him confessing their sins. Revival's breaking out. John the Baptist is preaching repentance in Elijah-like style. He looks like and sounds like Elijah. In fact, if you look at the next verse, it says he was clothed with camel's hair. By the way, that was not a fashion statement in that day and age. I mean, that was not something everybody wore. He wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locust and wild honey. You bet, because if you're going to have locust, you better chase it down with something, so he chased it down with honey. <laughs> I mean, he's a wild man. He dresses weird. He looks weird. And his message is different. It's a message with power. It's a message of repentance. It's a personal call, not a national call. And he says, you need to repent. You need to repent of the sin that you're in. He was not afraid to speak truth. In fact, you know who he was speaking to? He was speaking to the religious leaders of that day. In Luke's gospel, it's recorded this way. John said to the crowd coming to be baptized, you brood of vipers. Basically, call them snakes. You snakes, you. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What what, what does John say? I mean, first of all, he looks at the religious leader and says, you're a bunch of snakes. And he says, "Uh, you need to to live your life. You need to demonstrate that repentance is taking place in your life, and you're not. You think you're okay because you're related to Abraham. You think because Abraham's blood, your great forefather, courses through your veins that you're okay. And you're not. And you're not. By the way, John's preaching was very in your face, wasn't it? You would look at John and say he was not very seeker-friendly. I mean, in our day and age, there are a lot of churches, they want to be seeker-friendly. And so they're very careful what they say. That they guard their words in the pulpit, and as a result, some compromise and don't teach truth. Well, we want the gospel to be heard, but we're going to teach the truth of the gospel. And we're not going to, we're not going to do it in a, in a mean way, but we're not going to do it in a fearful way either. Because we recognize the gospel is a stumbling block. 
But if you don't know Christ, we pray. We pray that you would hear the message of his love and care for you. John doesn't say, thanks for coming to the river and listening to this message. Not what he says. John says, you snakes. You're misleading people. You're religious, but you're not righteous. And you're causing people to stumble by saying, just because you're related to Abraham, just because your genealogy is right, you're okay. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, I believe this reflects the culture of Central Texas. See, we're a religious culture too. I'll never forget, I've told you a story before. I came here at the ripe old age of 26. Been here 32 years. That makes me old. You can do the math. And uh, when I came at 26, there was a pastor that took me to lunch. And he looked at me and he said, uh, young man, let me give you some advice. In our community, you've got to get people lost so they can get saved. And I listened to that and thought, I wonder what in the world he means. And so we talked about it. And he said, you know, in, in our community, everybody claims to be a Christian. I mean, you've got to get people to understand that just because they live in central Texas and they're Texans and they're born in America, that mean they're Christians. And you know, over 32 years, I, he's right. He's right. In our community, we're, we're in the Bible Belt, or we're, we're the buckle of the Bible Belt. And, and most people believe, yeah, I, I, I'm a member of a church. I, I mean, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, so I've got to be a Christian. I mean, I'm born in America, most of us are born in Texas. I've got to be a Christian, right? I mean, being born in America doesn't make a Christian any more than being born in a garage would make you a car. And I'm not downplaying our country at all, but here's what I'm saying is we, we can do the same thing they were doing. We can say, hey, I go to Temple Bible Church. Hey, hey, hey I was born into a good family. My folks know the Savior. The question is your folks or your grandparents. The question is you. The question is you. You see, without a transformed heart, there is no fruit of repentance because repentance hadn't taken place. And so John the Baptist's message is straightforward. He's saying you've got to realize that you are lost and you're headed to a Christless eternity apart from a Savior, and therefore you need to repent of your sin. It's a story when King Frederick II was the uh, king of Prussia. He went to Berlin where one of his prisons were. And he said that uh, prisoners kept running up to the cell doors proclaiming their innocence. And he passed by one cell and noticed a man who was sitting on a bench in the back And he had the jailer call him to the cell door, and he asked him, he said, what are you in for, armed robbery, your majesty? Are you guilty? Yes, I am, sir. And the king turned to the jailer and said, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all those innocent men in this prison. (laughs) Hey, we're the ones who are guilty. Physician comes to heal those who are sick. Until we can admit our guilt and and our need for healing, we'll never need a savior. And John the Baptist came preaching a message that you need to repent because you think your genealogy saves you, and it doesn't. The next thing we see is not only Christ, first of all, his journey announced, but he's also affirmed on this journey. He's affirmed on the journey. It's his baptism. It came about, verse 9, in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, was baptized by John the Jordan. And immediately, there's our word, circle it, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, the spirit like a dove descending, and a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Three things to note about the baptism of Jesus. First of all, it's one of the few events recorded in all four Gospels. His baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. Secondly, 
All three persons of the Godhead are present. Jesus is obviously there being baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father affirms him through his words. And so you find a section of God's word or an element of God's word, a story of Jesus being baptized found in all four Gospels, all three persons of the Godhead present. So talks about its significance. And finally, this is a baptism unlike other baptisms. I mean, Jesus was baptized, but we see baptism as a picture. We like to say in our baptism meetings, baptism is an outward sign of an inward event. Your baptism is a picture of what's already taken place in your heart. That water doesn't save you. That water has nothing to do with your salvation. It's a public proclamation of what's already happened, the transaction that took place in your heart when you accepted Christ as your Savior. And so when you go to the creek with us and you're baptized, which is what you're doing, it's a picture of you having been washed from your sins and coming clean. It's a picture. So why was Jesus baptized? I mean, he didn't sin. It can't be a picture of his sins being washed away. Why was Jesus baptized? I think for at least three reasons. First of all, so he could be affirmed. One of the things that happened, he was affirmed by the Father. This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And it affirmed the ministry that he was about to begin. Secondly, it was an affirmation of John the Baptist's ministry and message. Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist was an affirmation. He allowed John to baptize him, so he's saying, I affirm his message, I, and, and, and I affirm his ministry, and John became the one who Jesus supported and affirmed through his baptism. Thirdly, I think he was baptized to identify with us. Baptism is a powerful sign. In many nations, when you're baptized, persecution begins or you're ostracized from your families, and at TBC, we take baptism seriously. If you come to our baptisms... To be baptized now, you have to go through an interview process. You have to submit a testimony of your faith in Christ, and we found it's a great opportunity for us to visit with folks who are even unsure about their faith in Christ. And then when you go to the creek, you're going to stand before three, four, five hundred 500 folks like we did two weeks ago with 31 people baptized, and you're going to actually give a public testimony from the youngest to the oldest of your faith in Christ because it's an opportunity for you to profess your faith in him. So we take it seriously as he took it seriously. By the way, geography is important to John. John is baptizing in the wilderness, and John is baptizing in the River Jordan. During the first exodus, when the nation of Israel fled from the Egyptians, they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. They passed through the River Jordan and went to the Promised Land. In the second exodus, we see people gone to the wilderness, being baptized in the River Jordan, and now they enter the Promised Land of eternal life with Christ if they've trusted him for their salvation. So what we see here, tremendous things happening. Tremendous things happening. You see the humility of John. People coming from everywhere, and he's humble. He says, I can't, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of him here who comes after me. You know, the other thing you see here is the affirmation of the Father. And I don't want to gloss over that. Right, we had grandparents stand up, speak to you as grandparents, speak to you as parents, got parents here, speak to you as a spouse, as a husband or a wife. If the father thought it was significant enough to affirm the son, how much more important is it for us to affirm those that we love? Words of affirmation spoken into the lives of sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and husbands and wives. I love the story Dan Allender tells. He talks about a friend who went to lunch with one of his daughters, a four-year-old daughter. I'm sorry, breakfast with a four-year-old daughter. And he went on this date specifically to speak truth into her life about how much he loved her and about her character and about the 
little girl that she was becoming and how much as a daddy he cared for her. And he said, I begin to speak those words over her and into her life. And when the waitress brought our order, I I stopped to cut up pancakes and I quit speaking to my four-year-old daughter. Next thing I knew, I felt her grab my wrist and she looked at me and said, more daddy, more. The power of affirming words. Do you do it? I shared with our men in Thursday morning Bible study, somebody sent me an email this week about the power of affirming words. A group of women were in a Bible study, and the leader said, how many of you women love your husbands? They all raised their hands. Then she said, when was the last time you told your husband you loved him? And some said, today. Some said, yesterday. And some sheepishly said, I don't remember. So she said, we're going to stop now. Here's the assignment. I want you to send a text message to your husband that says, I love you, sweetheart. And so all the ladies sent a message. Within seconds, their phones began to light up. The first one said, your mother's coming and you forgot to tell me, isn't she? (laughs) The next one said, don't beat around the bush. Tell me how much money you need. (laughs) And another one, the reply she got back after telling her husband she loved him, the text she received back is, who is this? The power of affirmation. They speak truth and love into the lives of those kids, grandkids, husbands, wives. You can do it right now if you want. You can lean over and just tell them you love them. Some may pass out here in the spot because you haven't done it in a long time. Okay? I mean, that becomes a struggle. Jesus was not only his journey announced, not only affirmed, but it was approved. How was approved? Through temptation. To him overcoming temptation. As I said, Mark records the temptation in two verses. Immediately, verse 12, he was impelled to go into the wilderness. Or he was impelled to go into the wilderness and the wilderness for 40 days. As we know, he fasted. He was tempted by Satan. Satan tempted him. And because Christ overcame that temptation, he has now shown that he's victorious over Satan. He's ready to be launched into ministry. He has power over sin and death itself. And that he can overcome temptation. So can we. So can we. We can do that as well. One author writing about temptation, falling into it, says maybe you tear up when you think about the words you screamed at your kids this morning. Maybe you deleted the history of your computer this week, promising yourself never to access those images again. Maybe you carry that empty snack bag with you in your purse to throw away later so people in your office won't see it in the wastebasket. Maybe the drugs in your desk drawer right now are the only things keeping you sane, but you fear they're making you crazy. Maybe you can't stop thinking about the smell of your coworker's hair, perfume, or cologne. The clink of the whiskey glass at the near table nearby. Hey, what's your temptation? The clinking glass, pride, materialism, sneak on a computer, worshiping your body so you work out all the time, the way you look, the way you act, the way people see you. Jesus overcame temptation so we don't have to fall into it. We're still going to sin, you bet we are. Do we have to? No, we can run to a Savior. So not only was the journey of Jesus announced, not only was he affirmed by the Father, not only was he approved by overcoming temptation, but then we see the journey beginning. After John the Baptist was taken into custody, the Scriptures say, Jesus came preaching the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus was prepared for the journey. We need to be prepared for the journey as well. Every day of our life, we're on a journey. The question is, are we prepared for the journey that's ahead of us? 
If you Google up Sir John Franklin, and you can do it, because two kids came to me after last hour. They showed me the picture I'm going to show you and said, Pastor Gary, what you said was true. And I said, thank goodness. (laughs) Sir John Franklin. In the year 1835, if you were on the British coast, you would see two ships getting ready to sail. Sir John Franklin was the commander of those two ships. He was the captain of those ships. And uh, you would see 138 sailors aboard those ships. Those ships were ill-prepared for the journey they were about to depart on. You see, the task in front of them, John Franklin wanted to make history, and what he wanted to do was chart the Northwest Passage around the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. So he wanted to go through the Northwest Passage, through the Arctic Circle, to the Pacific Ocean. When they took off, they were ill-prepared for the journey. History shows us that he made history, but not because of success, but because of failure. All 138 men lost their lives. Every man on the expedition died. They died because the ships never returned, because they had not prepared properly for the journey. In a maritime history, that's a lesson learned from this voyage. Prepare for the journey. Franklin did not. The voyage was projected to last two to three years. He only carried a 12-day supply of coal for the auxiliary steam engines. Two to three years, just 12 days of coal if something else should happen. But what they lacked in fuel, they made up for in entertainment. Each ship carried a 1,200-volume library, each ship. They also had a hand organ in each ship, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling flat silver flatware. Sounds like more preparation for a Caribbean cruise than an Arctic expedition, doesn't it? The sailors carried no special clothing to protect them against the cold of the Arctic. The only uniforms they wore were of Her Majesty's fleet, noble and respectful, but thin and inadequate. The silver knives, forks, and spoons were ornate, just like in the officers' club back home. The inevitable happened. The ships were ill-prepared as well. When they hit the frigid waters, the first thing that happened is their rudders began to ice over. And then they were enclosed by the ice flow. And eventually, they could go no further. They were trapped on their ships. The sailors set out in search parties, hoping to find something that would save them. But for the next 20 years, their bodies are found over the frozen ice. When Sir John Franklin's body was found, next to it was a backgammon set that his wife, Sir jo- or Lady Jane Franklin, had given to him for the journey. Many miles from the vessel was a skeleton of a frozen officer, and I quote, he was still wearing trousers and jacket of fine blue cloth edged with silk braid, but frozen to death. Isn't it strange how men could embark on a journey so ill-prepared? I mean, so ill-prepared. They took off on this journey for two to three years in that situation. You know what's worse? How ill-prepared we often are for the spiritual journey that's ahead of us. How often we, too, don't have much spiritual fuel, but we got a lot of entertainment. We've got nice, ornate things. And we look really good dressed in our finest. But are we really prepared for the journey? Because I'm here to tell you one day the Arctic chill is coming. James promises that in James 1. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. doesn't say if trials come your way, when trials come your way. And when the Arctic chill blows, if we have not prepared for the journey, we too will freeze to death. 
spiritually. Hey, I can tell you that. That Arctic chill comes and it takes the wind out of your sails for a while. But if we prepare along the way, prayerfully that wind comes back. Now I've got some great news. On this journey is a Savior who not only showed us the way and went the way, but he travels with us. Isn't that great news? See, he doesn't send us a journey alone. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, when I leave, I'm going to place the Holy Spirit within you. At the moment you believe, that's what it means to be baptized with the Spirit, to be identified with that, and then you can go through this journey properly prepared. How do you prepare for the journey? You're man or woman of the word. There are helps out on the hall table. Pick them up. Daily bread. Closer walk. Daily walk. You become a man or woman of the word. You become a man or woman who has a community of believers that surround you. So when the Arctic chill comes, I'll come and pray with you and for you and over you. You surrender your life every day to Jesus. You live your life on mission for a Savior. So that when the chill comes, you're not dressed and thin stuff. You're dressed properly. And you don't have a bunch of books to read, but you've got a transformed heart that God has taken you through the storm with. But most importantly, you have a Savior that you know and you love and who walks with you every step of the way. You prepared for the journey? Father, as we look at the journey of the Savior for the next few months, we thank you how you prepared him. The announcement of the coming king. The affirmation through baptism. The approval for ministry through overcoming temptation. And the launching of that ministry. God, I pray for every person in here. I pray that if there's any question in their mind, if they do not know Jesus, that they have not repented for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would. Father, a lot of us are on a journey, but we're not well prepared. We're not. We don't prepare ourselves every day. We live on a few marshals week to week. And I pray for these dear brothers and sisters that they wouldn't be ill-prepared, but they'd be well-prepared by being men and women who grow deep in Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.